Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Is there anything about our climate future that makes you feel optimistic? I feel like there are some people who are going towards it, but there's still some stuff going on, so I'm like split. And I'm not sure that they'll actually save it in time, but they also could. I feel really unoptimistic. Ever since I was really young, I was scared about climate change. I don't necessarily feel like enough is being done to change that. I kind of feel better about it, especially younger people, I think, are talking about it more with more like importance. With COVID, everybody who could do anything about it was doing it, but with this we have like six years and no one's doing anything. Do you hope something happens by the time you're an adult? Yes, I do. Do you think it will? Mm, maybe and maybe not. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and welcome to the show. Maybe and maybe not. Will humans seriously face the facts of our changing climate before those young people you just heard become adults? That is certainly the question of our time. Let's just take stock of a few lead stories in the news right now. Southern California was put under its first ever tropical storm warning this weekend. Tropical Storm Hillary made landfall in Mexico earlier today and is headed north. A 5.1-magnitude earthquake just shook parts of the area. California Governor Gavin Newsom has declared a state of emergency due to concerns about catastrophic and life-threatening floods, as well as tornadoes. Parts of Arizona and Nevada are also bracing for potential flash floods. Maui, meanwhile, is still reeling from the deadliest wildfire in U.S. history. At least 114 people have died. The toll is expected to rise significantly. Thousands of people have been displaced. In eastern Washington, near Spokane, another wildfire is spreading and prompting evacuations. I could go on in this fashion, but we all know the scary news about extreme weather and disasters. We've been hearing it all summer. And public opinion surveys suggest that a greater share of Americans consider climate change an urgent problem than ever before. But what do we do with our anxieties about the disasters that have been coming at us all summer? It's very easy to feel like our fate is sealed. And there is increasing concern among climate activists and experts that that kind of fatalism about the climate it is as much of an impediment to action as denial has been in the past. So this week, we're going to focus on potential solutions. We're going to meet some people who will share stories of what they consider to be progress in their communities, contributions they have made to both fixing our climate and adapting to the reality in which we live. And our phones are going to be open for this whole show, and we hope to facilitate a conversation amongst all of you 
about how to shake off fatalism and think about what we can all do. So here's a question. Can you point to something in your community or your own life that you would call a climate victory, a change that you've made or that's been made in your community that you're proud of? Help us see what's going on around the country, even stuff that's imperfect and maybe especially stuff that's imperfect that maybe is a start. What have you seen? What have you done? Your stories of climate victories in your communities and your lives. And as we take your calls, the first person we will meet is herself in the headlines this week. Ricky Held is a 22-year-old native of Broadus, Montana, and she is the lead plaintiff in the historic lawsuit Held v. Montana. Ricky and 15 co-plaintiffs, all between the ages of 5 and 22, sued the state for violating their right to a clean and healthful environment, which is a right enshrined in the Montana state constitution. And on August 14th, a judge ruled in their favor. The ruling has been called by some one of the strongest on climate change ever, and it's the first case of its nature to go to trial at all. There are several similar cases that have been filed, but this was the first one to go to trial, let alone to win a positive ruling. And Ricky Held joins me now to talk about it. Thanks for this time, Ricky. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so your testimony as lead plaintiff was about your family farm. So first off, just kind of tell us about that farm and, you know, try to make us all understand where you grew up and what that that place meant to your family or means to your family. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I grew up in southeastern uh, Montana, uh, near Broadus, like you said. And um, my family, had we have a ranch and motels in town. And so um, just growing up out there uh, was amazing. And um, I'm right here right now. Um, and just being really part of the ranching operations and even was for like out moving cattle horseback and um, being able to jump in the river, or climb trees or like take care of barnyard animals. Um, yeah. So it's uh, wonderful being from here. So it's a cattle ranch for those of us not from Montana yeah. or from such areas. That's, that's the idea is this great big space where cattle are roaming. Um, and uh, the powder river runs through the ranch. Uh, you testified uh, about a series of floods and droughts uh, in as the lead plaintiff in the case. Uh, the 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 river is both your water source for the the ranch and a threat when it floods. Can you explain what you told the court about how those uh, events affected your family? Yeah, um, yeah. Being a plaintiff in this case, I've gotten to tell my personal story and. That includes uh, more water variability. Um, that includes um, the Powder River is dried up one year enough to stop flowing, and it's also flooded, um, especially when um, there's higher than normal temperatures in um, like winter, early spring, and, and then a bunch of ice melts and there's flooding, and that's undercut our banks and um, undercut fences, and mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, we do rely on water, and so we rely on uh, snowpack in the hills, but that's not lasting into the summer. Um, with wildfires, um, both directly and indirectly, um, sometimes they'll burn down power lines. Like we had uh, this one time where 70 miles of power lines were burned down. And so that affected our ability to get water up to our tanks in the hills um, to our cattle. And with drought, there's less grass, cattle have to travel farther. So it all kind of works together in the system. And especially being from a ranch community, we rely on the land so much for our livestock and our crops and Mm -hmm. just our livelihood. So yeah, you can really see those impacts. And what are the consequences? I mean, for that, 
the the flooding and the wildfires that you're describing, what what are the consequences for the ranch when that happens? I mean, at one level, it's your home and that's your whole life. Um, and at another, it's just, I mean, the basic financial and economic losses um, and ranching is hard anyway. And then right. facing all of these changes and uh, um, unstable climate system, it just furthers that. And, um, you know, sometimes summers are just so smoky all the time and get air quality alerts and are having extreme heat days. Um, and you just have to keep working through that. Um, and with our motels in town, that's affected by like the Yellowstone flooding that closed mm-hmm. down highways or less wildlife affects our hunting season reservations. So it all yeah, kind of works together. Uh, an interesting factoid about you that I learned uh, in uh, reading about you was that you have been an environmental scientist since you were 15 years old. Um, and uh, you participated in a long-term study of the Powder River uh, since it runs through your property, you help take measurements for the study, and are, you are cited in a journal article uh, on on this river, which is really cool. But I also read that as you were learning about climate change in that age um, in high school, you you didn't think it affected you personally because you didn't live near an ocean. Tell me about that, and and what made you think differently about it. Right. Yeah. When, when, just when I was in high school and I first learned about climate change, I. It's seemed like this thing on the other side of the world that was affecting um, like glaciers, polar bears, and sea level rise. And I thought it was a huge issue even then. But I guess I just learned more, did my own research, started connecting um, what I was seeing on the ranch to um, this very real issue. And I made it a lot more personal. And I've mm-hmm. um, uh, then and like through this case, I've been able to tell my personal story and, and understand it in inside of this like more broad global narrative. But everyone is impacted by climate change. Um, and sometimes it's hard to think about it that way. But I mean, even with the wildfire smoke, like all you guys there were affected by the smoke and from Canada this year. And, um, and we're all affected because our societies depend on these stable environments. Right. The lawsuit was possible because of an amendment to the state constitution from the 1970s that says Montana residents have a right to a clean and healthful environment. It, did Before the lawsuit, were you aware that you had that constitutional right? No. <laughs> um, no, I remember jumping on the first call, call with OCT, uh, our children's trust, after I reached out to them. And they explained what the lawsuit was and that we had... Uh, rights in our constitution, such as to a clean, healthful environment, so besides all the rights to life and liberty and land and all that. Um, and I just thought it was a perfect case because of those rights um, protected by um, generations before us. And, um, you know, in that 1972 constitutional convention, people from all over the state were there and ranchers, educators, clergy, and um, lawyers and businessmen, like, they all came together to protect those rights because mm-hmm. we care about our land and our people. And so I guess with this case, we're kind of trying to continue that mm-hmm. as the future generation to protect it for now and, and future ones ahead. A lot has been made of your youth, the fact that you're all youth in this lawsuit and others. Why, why is your age relevant to, to the conversation? Why does it matter that, that you are young people fighting for this right to you? Yeah. Um, well, youth are disproportionately affected by climate change. We had experts uh, in our court case testify to that uh, with um, physical health for one, um, 
you know, more likely to be affected by air pollution and extreme heat for um, some examples. Um, and then youth don't have a say in our government systems, um, can't vote and don't aren't in positions of power. Um, and so I was 18 when we filed this case. And so I've been lucky that I've been able to vote now and um, have more of a say. But we really are doing this case because young people don't have voices and future generations don't have voices. And we need the courts to protect those rights and our governments to take responsibility and do what's best for its citizens. We need to take a little break. Uh, Ricky, I hope you'll stick around for just a few more minutes. Uh, I want to I ask you a few more questions after the break. Ricky Held is a 22-year-old environmental scientist from Broadus, Montana. She is the lead plaintiff in Held v. Montana, a case brought by her and 15 other young people working with the legal advocacy group Our Children's Trust. On August 14th, a district court ruled that the state had, in fact, violated Ricky's right to a clean and healthful environment. Coming up, we'll talk a little bit more about that case, and we'll start taking your calls. Do you have a climate victory in your community you want to share? Stay with us. Hi, my name's Regina, and I'm a producer with the show. You may remember that last year, we started the Notes from America Summer Playlist. We collected submissions from you and curated a playlist that everyone could enjoy. Well, summer is here again, and I'm happy to announce we're launching our second summer playlist. A couple weeks ago, I had a conversation with the guys from a band called Wake Island. They talked about how music has become such a powerful outlet for identity filling a need as they search for their place in the Arab-American diaspora. So now it's your turn. What's a song that represents your personal diaspora story? Here's how to send us your response. Go to notesfromamerica.org and look for the record button to leave us a message. Start with your name and where you're recording from. Then tell us the name of that song, the artist, and a short story that goes along with it. Feel free to include a little bit about your background as well. Make it your own. And please make sure that your recording is at least a minute long. We'll gather all the songs and your stories in Spotify playlists that will drop regularly all summer long. All right, I think that's everything. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. And I can't wait to hear from you. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. And this week, we are facing our anxieties about a summer of extreme weather and climate-related disasters. And we're talking about progress, where we can find some cautious optimism so that we don't end up stuck in fatalism. And I'm still joined by Ricky Held, who is the lead plaintiff in the case Held v. Montana. It's a suit brought by her and 15 other young people who sued the state for violating their right to a clean and healthful environment and have won a important ruling uh, in the in the last week. And Ricky, I, I want to ask you about the state's response to your victory. Um, the state attorney general's office is appealing the ruling and has called your suit a publicity stunt. Um, they note that similar cases have been dismissed Uh, from state and federal courts, and they're confident they'll win on appeal to the state Supreme Court. How do you respond to that criticism that this is a publicity stunt? Um, I don't know. I guess (laughs) I just know that 
this is the right thing to do because the state of Montana has known about climate change, human caused climate change since the 1960s. And we have technologies to switch to more renewable energy sources um, that would protect our state and, and beyond Montana as well. Um, and it would ele- reduce electricity costs and health costs because people are being affected. So I don't know how you can argue, but we presented a week of evidence and the state had their chance to do that. And they presented for part of a day and you just can't argue with what our experts testified to because we had such a strong story with all the personal plaintiff testimony and with our experts talking about the science, the best available science we have on the climate science and what the impacts are to youth, especially with health and mental health impacts and and all of the opportunities we have moving forward and that Montana can rely on, mm-hmm. like when water and solar um, and how much it would benefit our state. Um, so no, it's not a publicity stunt. This is coming out of our Montana values and our laws and our mm-hmm. constitution. And how do you, where do you fall on this realm of optimism versus uh, doom and gloom and fatalism around climate change? This is, this suit is an act of great optimism. So I think I know, um, but for, for those of us that we're going to spend the rest of this show talking about like, where do we, how do we, how do we feel about climate change and what does it mean for how we then act? What, is, what would you say to folks um, who are sort of, who are, who are feeling fatalistic about it? Um. Well, how I feel about it is it is terrifying. And sometimes when you let it all kind of rush in and think about it, like I think about all of the things that you hear on the news all the time, and it just is still happening and we're in the midst of this crisis and we do need to do something about it. But sometimes it's good to let that fear sink in and realize that this is a problem, but that isn't going to help us move forward. And so we just need to think about actionable steps that we can take moving forward. And this case was um, a great example of that. It's the first time that a court has declared state um, hospital policies unconstitutional. And there's going to be other cases going forward. Um, and just there are actions that we can take as individuals or states or um, at a more global national scale that we need to take because this is the world we live in and we want to protect it. Um, and so it is good to stay optimistic optimistic and I am and I have a lot of hope for a future especially taking action and be working with so many amazing people who are looking out for our future um, that's what gives me hope Ricky Held is the lead plaintiff in Held v Montana a case brought by her and 15 other young people working with the legal advocacy group our children's trust that sued the state of Montana for violating their right to a clean and healthful environment on August 14th a district court ruled that the state had, in fact, violated Ricky's rights. Ricky, thank you so much for this time. Thank you so much. And I have been asking for you to call in with your stories of other kinds of climate progress in your community. You have certainly responded. There are a great many of you on the phone. So I'm going to just start taking a few of them now. Uh, And in a minute, we will be joined by Liza Featherstone, who has written uh, an article in the New Republic uh, that is helping us think through this tension between optimism and fatalism as well. But let's start with Carrie Ann in Chicago, Illinois. Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you. So do you have a story of uh, climate victory in your community, Carrie? 
Yeah. So when I was in college in upstate New York, um, I organized with a bunch of other students on my campus, and we pushed the college to join an international accord. And the whole point of all of it was to talk about climate change in every single classroom, regardless of the content area. Um, And so we were successful. Um, Our college joined the accord. And what that wound up looking like in our community um, is for our college campus, we started talking about climate change in studio arts and in writing um, and in gender studies classes. And we started to build a more intersectional understanding of the solutions that exist and also the way we're approaching solutions and how lots of different roles in our community can help develop and bring in support for creating a resilient future together. And it was really cool because even though we had only passed it at the college level, we were in such a localized community. A lot of the effects of um, starting to talk about climate change at that level made its way into high school classes. And then also just like there was a boom of uh, work happening in the community all of a sudden where we were doing all types of cool stuff to help fight um, or mitigate climate change's effects for our local community. Wow. So it was catalytic. Um, you, you took one action, it had, it had an advance, it had a victory, and that led to, to more action. Yeah. And I think like when we talk about how to build hope, it was like we were really loud about we want to talk about it. And it was catalytic because we were talking loud enough. And that gave our community enough hope to be like, oh, we can actually do some of this stuff. Thank you for that, Carrie. Let's go to Scott in Longford, Connecticut. Scott, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. What's your climate victory story you want to share, Scott? Well, it's kind of related to climate change, and it's also related to globalization. But here in Connecticut, we have the wonderful Connecticut River that runs all the way from practically Canada down through New Hampshire and Vermont, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. And we're lucky down in southern Connecticut, to have the Connecticut River as a tidal estuary. It's one of the most productive and untampered with uh, river systems on the whole East Coast. And unfortunately, um, several large river systems in on the East in New England, et cetera, have been hammered by an invasive aquatic uh, plant called water chestnut. Uh, it comes from Asia, and it's that's the globalization part, how that was brought in. But also, um, with water temperatures warming and w- water levels rising, it's spreading. Um, so we, we've got a bunch of us for several years who have been out harvesting this harmful plant. Um, it puts out these crazy seeds that are like the size of a walnut with these sharp thorns on them, really big. Uh, they would puncture a tire if a tire ro- car rode over it or certainly a, a water shoe or sandal, et cetera. They're really bad. Each seed can um, generate uh, eight or so florets of plants, and each one of those florets will put out about eight more seeds. So unchecked, they really go crazy. Done a lot of damage in the Hudson River system. And uh, we've been harvesting them. Yeah, go ahead. And so you've been harvesting them, cleaning them out, uh, and... and 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 I have to say that 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 I'm it, it outstrips my understanding a little bit, um, Scott. But the point is that there is an invasive thing, um, and you've been able to get it out of the yeah. environment, right? Thank you. We're for- getting out there in small boats. We have to lean over the side of the boat, haul that stuff in with our hands. It's dirty. It's ugly. Okay. Uh, then you have to fill the boat up with it and go get rid of it. Um, sometimes okay. we have some assistance with trucks, but uh, 
it's a lot of hard work, but we're making the river a better, right. a better place. We you, call ourselves unsung heroes. T- it, it, well, now you are a sung hero, Scott. We have sung you on the radio nationally, um, taking care of your local river. Thank you, Scott. Um, as we continue to take your calls, I'm going to be joined now by activist and author Liza Featherstone, who wrote an essay for the New Republic earlier this summer that really got my attention, in which she argued, quote, the case against both climate hope and climate despair. That was the headline of the essay. Uh, and she joins me to explain what exactly she wants us to feel if it's neither hope nor despair. Hi, Liza. Thanks for this time. Hi, Kai. Thanks for having me. Um, and I should say, um, you know, usually writers say, oh, yeah, I don't write the headlines. But I actually I did, did write, write that, that headline, that so your, I have to own that. That was your <laughs> yeah. work. Yeah. All right. Well, listen. Well, first off, anything that you heard uh, in either Carrie or Scott there that you want to respond to in terms of how we're feeling about climate change right now? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think this is just so generative because um, we rarely ask people, you know, we we rarely ask the general public, what is a climate victory in your community or something right, that you've right. been a part of? And just uh, just after just a couple minutes, uh, we're hearing the most amazing stories. And, and it, it, do, it, it definitely, um, I think, reflects how... Um, Little of that is picked up normally in the media mm-hmm. um, for some good reasons and for some bad reasons, yeah. you know, that, um, you know, we um, we kind of tend to focus on the, you know, the worst disasters that are happening because they are very newsworthy and important. <laughs> and But then that, that piece of, like, people are winning and, you know, doing something about this um, every day. And, you know, when we lose track of that, it's like, well, no wonder so many uh, people are suffering from climate despair and mm-hmm. climate um, anxiety. And I guess the, the case against both <laughs> is, um, you you know the the case against um, what many in the climate movement are calling doomism. Doomism is the sense that there is nothing we can do. The fix is in. Um, the climate apocalypse is coming. I, th- I think that um, you know the, that's a, a narrative that's been criticized for a long time um, and kind of gained some respectability a few years ago with. Um, Jonathan Franzen and some other literary guys mm-hmm. who started writing these essays about, you know, how, um, you know, they were just giving up. And, you know, those arguments were widely criticized by scientists, mm-hmm. climate scientists, who argue absolutely not. There's um, a lot that we can do and are doing about this problem. But the affect is very um, contagious and pervasive and very understandable because um, because we are seeing um, just almost a daily you know loss of life mm-hmm. from some climate disaster or another um, and and it's devastating uh, the case against climate hope I mean what I mean by that is you know there's a um, writer named Mary Louise Hegler um, has a great term, hopium, um, (laughs) which is, you know, the sort of way that um, when faced with a serious problem, hope can be just, you know, kind of um, anesthetizing, you know, as the climate movement wants to, you know, motivate people, get their attention, how serious this problem is. A a lot of the um, sort of positivity 
and um, especially coming out of the tech world, you know, that, you know, we can, do, we can solve this, you know, we can do anything, you know, can have an anesthetizing effect. And what we really want to see, I think, as a climate movement and as uh, members of the human race is um, a realistic approach, which is, you know, recognizing our feelings of grief and anxiety are very valid, that you know, this situation is extremely serious, but that that recognition should mo- motivate us to take action, like all the great people that you just talked with, and that taking action isn't just kind of an existential Sisyphean thing that we do to make ourselves feel a little better. T- taking action is actually really working, yeah. you know, that um, not that we can stop the worst effects of climate change, those are already here, but we can save many of our civilizations, we can save many lives, we can save many ecosystems and many species, and we are doing that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a balance. Our, What's our, a, our feelings need to um, lead us to this balance. To this place. balance. But yeah. you argue in the piece, and, and give me the thumbnail version of this in just like, you know, mm-hmm. maybe a minute or so, that we've made more progress in the last couple, we've made progress in the last couple of years that were unimaginable in the recent past. Make that case uh, in 60 seconds. Completely. I mean, you know, in in past, even democratic administrations, you know, if we got a regulation that saved a species or two, we'd be like, the environmental movement would be like, yay, this is an amazing victory. I mean, we have seen the Inflation Reduction Act, which um, and also the Bipartisan Infrastructure Acts, which invested um, billions and billions of federal money um, into decarbonizing our economy. Um, we're going to be seeing the effects of that um, more and more um, as as that comes online. And, you know, New York State just won a significant, we just won a significant victory in the Build Public Renewables Act to um, use public money. And actually, that builds on the victory of getting so much investment from the Inflation Reduction Act, um, because we can use that money to build public renewables in New York State. And it creates a blueprint that other states can use as well. And... um, I would say these are the kinds of things that um, that really couldn't have been anticipated. Like five years ago, the scale of that um, would not have been imaginable. And the good news is we're way beyond this sort of building awareness. You know, mm-hmm. we use like like if you think about it, like five years ago, you know, a a climate victory would be like, well, we created some awareness. Right. right. You know, and 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 right. that is. Right. Totally not good enough, but fortunately, we are actually way um, beyond that. Um, and um, you know, and and I think that that's um, that that's really important. We need to take another break. I'm talking with Liza Featherstone, whose essay in the New Republic earlier this summer argued the case against both climate hope and climate despair. And we're going to take your calls after the break. It's going to be all about you. Tell us your story of a climate victory. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. 
You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome back. This week, we're trying to shake off the paralyzing eco-anxiety that many of us have developed over the course of this summer of extreme weather and climate disasters. And we're doing that by sharing stories of progress and action on the climate crisis. I'm still joined by author and activist Liza Featherstone. And Liza and I want to hear more of your stories of climate action. So let's start with Wes in New Hampshire. Wes, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me, Kai. Thank you for calling. Do you have a climate victory to share? Well, I'd like to hope it's a victory. Okay, good uh, enough. I spent, uh, I spent 35 plus years teaching environmental science, and I started an energy program that trained students for careers in energy efficiency. And I saw what you're talking about firsthand from many students who went from either not understanding or denial to throwing their hands up in the air. And uh, to me, I've always felt better about things when I could take responsibility for myself. Mm. So that's what I've tried to teach. Uh, I wrote a book called Warm and Cool Homes about five net zero houses that heat, cool, and electrify for less than $500 a year in New Hampshire. And um, made a series of videos which basically show people how they can do some or all of these things to their houses. And take responsibility for their own actions. And okay. one of the things in writing the book I found was that all of the people I interviewed who had houses like this felt really proud that they were doing something positive. And a lot of times people think, well, I can't solve the, the problem, so there's nothing I can do. And what I'm trying to point out to people is there is something you could do by taking responsibility for yourself and the carbon you do or don't emit. Okay. And I uh, go around to schools I'm, and libraries and speak about this. I'm going to stop you there, Wes, just for time, because we got a bunch of callers. But thank you for that contribution. Let's go to Lawrence in Chicago. Lawrence, welcome to the show. Hey. Well, thank you very much, my friend. And uh, I appreciate your time. I just want to first say, if I may, very briefly, I want to thank Liza and Ricky for their contributions to this thought effort and where we go. On one hand, as a 65-year-old man, I apologize that my generation didn't do enough early to bring this, you know, to a head such that with climate change occurring rapidly, um, we would give the new generation uh, an opportunity to be at the seat of the table to change this paradigm. That being said, victories, um, you know, in my ward in Chicago, I'm in Berwyn, you know, we recently were declared a natural disaster um, based on rain and flooding. And one of the things 
I've been encouraging our people to do is plant more trees and vegetation to absorb the water runoff. Um, that being said, uh, you know, that is a victory. Subsequently, mm-hmm. you know, on the carbon footprint, you know, I've been studying my own home to learn how to naturally ventilate the house, even with, you know, 108 degree heat index to still be comfortable without using air conditioning. And then the other thing, as a architect for the federal government, one of the things that I've been concerned with, my friend, is that the models to reduce energy footprint are outdated. You know, they're four, five, maybe even 10 years old. And that has got to change. You know, the data as we're occurring right now is very at a critical level, if you will. I'll say it that way. And we're not modeling that when we try to reduce footprint for energy use. And Lawrence, and just because I'm short on time here, just a quick on that last point. So what is there a victory in that um, that you want to share in terms of fixing that problem? Well, you know, as an advocate, because, you know, part of it is I think about my grandson and, uh, you know, where the next generation is going. So I keep telling the federal government that the data is outdated, if you will. And we need to update that. Okay. I'm going to stop you, Lawrence, but in advocating for a change, which I agree, advocacy is itself uh, progress. Uh, Let's go to Joyce in Portland. Joyce, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. Um, there's many things that have been victories here. I'm part of a group that um, for 50 years have worked to, to get nuclear power out of this state. We're still working on that and have been successful so far. I was part of a group that planted 10,000 native trees in Oaks Bottom and created what was a landfill into a wilderness area. And personally, in my own home, by um, taking this 100-year-old house and insulating the walls, putting solar on the roof, I went from using 1,000 gallons of oil a year to heat this house to this year. It was 100, and I'm sure I can even do better. Okay. Go, Joyce. Thank you so much for that contribution. Uh, And then one more person we asked to call in this week is Jesse Marquez, who created the Coalition for a Safe Environment in Wilmington, California. Uh, And Jesse, welcome to the show. Are you there for me? Uh, Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, Jesse, first off, Wilmington is right in the path of the tropical storm that is bearing down on Southern California right now. I, I, I believe you are currently traveling uh, and not in the area, but are you in touch with people back there? How are people feeling and preparing in Wilmington? Actually, I arrived last night, so I'm back in town. Not a problem. Okay. Are you safe? And just to clarify, Wilmington is a community within the city of Los Angeles. Gotcha. So we are one of the harbor coastal communities, and and the port of Los Angeles is physically located and borders Wilmington. All right. And how are things right now? That's, what are you concerned about or are ready for for the community? Well, on the good side, in 2018, our organization received a grant to prepare a Wilmington Emergency Preparedness Plan, 
which was finished in 2020. So in preparing a plan, it addresses all aspects of potential disasters, natural disasters, you know, industrial disasters, climate change impacts, so that we have had a campaign now for a couple of years in sharing the information that we've learned, sharing how to prepare, sharing how to to address these things once they occur, how to network with other people. And by having this document available, all this outreach has worked with our community in understanding what they needed to do. And I'm happy to say that, yes, residents paid attention. Yes, they've been listening to the news and that they were preparing for the tropical storm. Even doing simple things like taking down a canopy in the backyard, your umbrella with a table and where you have your little breakfasts in the morning, you know, uh, stocking up an extra water. But then we also brought out to them, well, when power goes out, you have to be prepared with power. So make sure you have flashlights, backup batteries for the flashlights. If you have a heater that's electric, then you might need to make sure that there's enough power for that. If you don't have electricity, then, you know, there's all kinds of things that folks had to do, um, and they did them. And, yeah. and so that, we've already, we're at a climate victory story from you there, um, even as disaster comes at you. Um, Wilmington is part, uh, is right by the Port of Los Angeles, uh, as you pointed out. And, you know, it's surrounded by uh, refineries, by major freeways and other environmental hazards. The community is overwhelmingly uh, Latino. And part of why we wanted to talk to you is that over the past 20 years, you and your neighbors have really have been effectively organizing on behalf of environmental justice for your community. And I wanted to bring that into the conversation. And I, I know in particular, one of the projects that caught our attention was the Wilmington Weather Station. Can you describe what that is and why you would consider it a victory? Well, remember, I just mentioned the Wilmington Emergency Preparedness Plan. In the process of researching that, we realized that our community needed to have access to information, like in real time, as it's happening now. But what happens if the radio stations go out? I mean, the TV stations, radio stations go out. Does the community have any other resource to go to? Mm -hmm. Well, we do. We have our own weather station in our office. We have backup power, so we don't need to be on the grid. So we will always know what is available here. Even our weather station is connected to the website and connected to the Internet. We even have backup power to the Internet so that, you know, we can keep on ticking as long as possible. But from the weather, we also realized when we put it together, we wanted to have a website, but no one ever goes to a weather station website. <laughs> okay. So we made it a web. We needed to make sure that we had things that people needed to know. And that's where climate change also came into it and natural disasters. So we have links. So if we're talking about tropical storms, there's a tropical storm link. There's a hurricane link. There's an earthquake link. <laughs> and so we have all these resources there on our website and in our station that people, students, in fact, even a teacher told us one time when she looked at our agenda of what links we were having, you don't have anything for teachers and students. So, so then we had to go to. back... And we found nine more links for teachers and students, and we added that to our weather station. But we also had a, another little community science victory in terms of research. 
we kind of wonder, well, what is the average temperature of Wilmington? What's the average temperature of Los Angeles? What's the average temperature of California? What's the average temperature of the United States? And then when we got the numbers, we had found a little state of shock because it showed that Wilmington's temperature was higher. Now, how can Wilmington's temperature be higher? We're by, right by the ocean. We're by, by the coast. You know, winds blow in. But then we realized the industries around us. On three corners of Wilmington's border, we have a refinery. On the south end, we have the Port of L.A. and Port of Long Beach. On the northwest, we have the sanitation department there. Well, we discovered that we are an example of a heat island effect, which means all these industries generate more heat in your community, so your temperature is higher. So when we're talking about climate change and increasing heat, then our community is going to suffer more because we are already above average on what our heat impacts. But then heat impacts not only affect us in terms of public health, the dangers, because we have four refineries in Wilmington. Everyone has exploded anywhere from two to five times in the last Exploded as in had caught fire. Caught fire and exploded. When I was 16... I lived in Wilmington on the border of Carson. See if Carson had an ore refinery there. And at 5 p.m. that afternoon, there was an explosion. Mama just called us kids to come and have dinner. As we were running down the hallway to get to the dinner table, we all fell because of that shockwave from the earthquake. Mom and Dad said, hurry up, let's go in the car. we got to leave because we're not going to stay there to see what's going to happen. Go grab gra- Grandma next door. We started getting our car. A second one exploded. Now we were trapped. We couldn't get in our cars. We we're going to hold hands, run to the corner, and keep on running for the next seven, eight blocks to get to our auntie's house. But then a third one exploded, larger than the others. We had to run to the backyard. My father yells at me to help my three brothers over the back wall fence. My dad was helping my grandmother, my mother, who was also seven months pregnant, over that fence. I jump over as the last person. I get ready to run away. I hear a woman's voice. Boy, boy, please turn around. Please, please turn around. I turn around. There's this blonde woman holding a baby in her hand. The baby's blanket was burned. The baby's face was burned. She threw the baby over the wall like a football. I caught the baby, and she yells at me, please, please run as fast as you can. Don't turn around. Save my baby's life. And there is no hospital in Wilmington. I eventually ran to a clinic in Wilmington. Jesse, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to cut this this dramatic story short um, because we're running out of time. But because I know that that is your origin story as an environmental justice activist, can you, in you know, sixty seconds or so, give me? I mean, because a story like that. Uh, reflects just how hard it is to have optimism in the face of environmental injustice in particular, the equity questions in particular. What is your takeaway for people who care about that issue, about how we stay not fatalist? And again, I got about 60 seconds for you here. Okay, you do what we did. We thought, what could we possibly do? An emergency preparedness plan was the solution. We needed to understand the dangers. We needed to know what were the recommendations for each one. We prepared charts, posters, handouts, 
so that our community would be aware of what they could do. Then we got involved in public policy, where we supported AB 32 in 2006, the Global Warming Solutions Act. Then we became part of the advisory committee. And as part of the advisory committee, I made a recommendation that came as a result of our China shipping lawsuit that all ports should plug into electric shore power. I will have to stop you with those examples, Jesse. I appreciate it. Um, the, so, but the point is political action. Um, and that is an excellent segue uh, for final thoughts from you, Liza, because a lot of your work um, is in electoral politics. And so from a perspective of political action uh, here, as we close the show, what fatalism in that category, that seems like a place where I, where I feel quite fatal <laughs> um, in terms of the, the inability to make, to, to make elected officials care. Yeah. Um, Well, I think that is actually changing. It was certainly conventional wisdom for a long time um, among Democratic operatives, even among further left people that, you know, you just, you you can't really make elected officials care about climate issues because because voters don't care enough Mm -hmm. was the kind of conventional wisdom. I was just looking at some polling going back for the last 11 months um, when people say, what what is the most important issue to you? Um, people who voted for Joe Biden in 2020, um, for the last 11 months, climate has been their most important for issue. For these past 11 months. For these past 11 months. Wow. I don't think this has ever happened before. And um, it seems like a very good opportunity to build on all the kinds of victories we've been discussing. Because if this is really, given this is the most salient issue to Democratic voters right now, more than inflation, like more than all the things that we believe are more important to people. So I I think that, you know, this is a lot to build on and the politicians are going to start caring because the voters the, the voters are going to vote. Care. The voters are going to vote on this issue. We got to leave it there. Liza Featherstone's essay in the New Republic is titled "The Case Against Both Climate Hope and Climate Despair." We'll put a link in the episode description for the podcast drop of this episode. Liza, thanks so much for this time. Thank you. What an honor. And thanks to everyone who called in. You can keep talking to us at notesfromamerica.org. Just look for the green re- record button and leave us a voicemail. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer. I'm Kai Wright, and I will talk to you here next week.